0: About a year or two after my mom died, my father told me that he had gone out to a a bar. And I was very familiar with the bar because it was a place that I had gone, <laughs> and I knew there were a lot of younger people there, way younger than my dad. And I knew of some singles programs for people closer to his age. So I set him up with that group, and he went. And not long after that, he met a lady there who they ended up dating for about 28 years or so.
1: Hey everyone, happy 2018. I'm Jana Panaritis, and this is the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. Coming up next, episode 125. Iris Wakler has been a licensed clinical social worker for over 35 years. Much of that time spent working as a medical social worker with elderly people admitted to the hospital. She's authored hundreds of articles on health, patient, and family advocacy topics, and is the author of three books, including the recently published Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. In part one, she combines her own family history and issues that came up as her parents aged with information and advice on how to approach related caregiving challenges, Part two of the book focuses on how to address critical topics that caregivers routinely face, like how to manage hospital bills and insurance questions, and how to split up responsibilities among siblings. It's all accompanied by links to lots of resources you can tap into right away. Iris Wakler joins us today from chilly Chicago, Illinois. Iris, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Oh, it's, it's so great to be here. Thank you, Jan.
1: Sure. Let's start with you talking about growing up in a multi-generational household. If you can set that scenario for us and tell us about your dad who comes out of the gate right away in the book as being very charismatic. Sure. My folks had
0: a philosophy that um, they wanted our home to be open to, to family and friends, and it was one of those places that everyone wanted to come. And so I don't recall a time when I was growing up where there wasn't a family member with us who was a member of the extended family. So that meant I grew up with my mom's mom. Uh, My my father's parents were there. We had cousins there. We adopted my brother and sister. And we also had a number of friends that were there all the time. So... It really was an incredible experience to grow up and to have them as models for me and and my siblings about the importance of family and the definition of
1: what family really means. Mm-hmm. And your mom was her parents' caregiver. Is that right? I, I think I read that right. Uh, her
0: mom, yeah. My mom. grandfather died, died when my mother was 16, mm-hmm. but she did take care of her mom who came and had cancer. And my father's mother and father lived with us and she helped take care of them as well.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And you wrote about you and your siblings teasing your dad about his his sayings. (laughs) I love the fact that his eyes would twinkle and he'd say, I only say it because it's true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, honestly, that's what I wanted to call the book, I Only Say It Because It's True, because that was sort of his his classic line Mm
2: -hmm. when he was
0: saying something that would get him into trouble and we would tease him about it. But my publisher said that people would really know what that meant, so I had to, I had a yield on that one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, he had a great, wonderful sense of humor, and um, it served him well all through his life. And particularly when he got older and he was facing issues around aging, um, his sense of humor was something that he tapped into, and and we could tap into um, even in, in his final days. We laughed together and we smiled together, and. As a kid when you're growing up it's comforting and as a caregiver it's comforting to be able to have that kind of relationship with the person you're taking care of.
1: Mhm. Well, your mom um unfortunately passed away when when you were in grad school or soon soon thereafter, was it? And yeah, she was young. She was fifty seven. Yeah, gosh. And what struck me about that, because this often happens, I think more so in their generation, because my parents protected me from some information that I'd rather have known about when it happened as well, Uh, it struck me about how your dad and your mom kept her breast cancer diagnosis from you at first. I wonder if you could talk about the ongoing communication problems you had with her doctors and how you handled that and your reaction to your, your parents withholding the diagnosis from you at first.
0: Yeah, that was really tough. I was away at school, as you mentioned. Um, I sort of accidentally found out about the diagnosis. I used to call every Sunday just to talk with them, and uh, I mentioned that I was going to try to come in for a visit, and I noticed there was a silence, an awkward silence, which was unusual. And then my father said to my mother, I think you should tell her.
2: Mm. And
0: that's how I learned about her breast cancer diagnosis. Also with my background, my my medical background, I, I wasn't intimidated by doctors uh-huh. in hospitals. And I think that's an issue for a lot of people. And I do have perhaps more than the average understanding about what's going on in a hospital and medically what's happening since I worked with cancer patients. And I just wanted to ask her doctors just <laughs> questions to just get a sense of what kind of cancer she had, how bad was it, what was the treatment, and my mom um, had total faith in her doctor and was very reticent to have us even talk to them. Huh. Her doctor, in, in my opinion, wasn't especially a good doctor, but he knew how to talk to my mother in a way to make her feel good. So he would come in the room and say, oh, you look beautiful today. Hmm. And would avoid using that as a way to avoid talking about the medical issues. Literally, when my mom had her mastectomy, and this this was a different doctor, the surgeon walked out of the surgery, he literally walked by my father and said, it's metastasized, and walked down the hall. I literally had to chase him down the hall to get him to stop, Mm -hmm. to talk to me so I could find out how far the cancer had spread, what stage the cancer was, and what the treatment was going to be. Mm -hmm. So very, very frustrating as a family member and as someone that was really concerned and wanted to help my mom every way I
2: could.
1: Oh, yeah. So in families that don't have, you know, an advocate like yours, or even have open communication, what sort of advice can you give listeners on how to approach a situation like that, where communication is difficult, among family members, and perhaps in the hospital. I think that's tough for a lot of people, and you were at a great advantage because your frame of reference was really based on your experience as a social worker.
0: I think that's so true. My first book that I wrote was because of that. I wrote a book called Patient Power, How to Have a Say During Your Hospital Stay, mm-hmm. for precisely that reason, to give people the, in- the information and the support they needed to ask questions. Um, in answer to your question, I think, one of the main things to do is to identify a family member that you feel is most equipped to answer the questions that need to be asked. Um, and if there isn't anyone that fits that bill, and you might employ a friend's efforts. My role in the hospital as a medical social worker was to be an advocate for family members.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: I would talk with them. I would help them know the questions to ask, to talk to their doctors. I advocated for them. When I know they didn't understand something, I would be the mediator sort of between the doctor or the resident and the family members and the patients so that communication lines were open and that everyone was getting the information that they needed so that the next steps could be made based on
1: informed decisions. Mm -hmm. And who does the family member what person do they ask for in the hospital? Like, if they want to know, like, the doctor didn't help them out and they don't know where to turn to, who should they ask in the hospital to connect with about um, next steps?
0: They can ask for the social worker. There usually is a social worker that works with a designated medical population. in hospitals, many hospitals have ombudsmen, whose mm-hmm. role it is is mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. facilitate communication. Mm-hmm. If there isn't someone like that, most hospitals have a chaplain, Mm-hmm. or someone like that that can also act as an advocate for a patient or family members. There usually is someone available to do
1: those things. Mm-hmm. That person is so important, too, because, you know, as with your experience, the doctor was really not forthcoming with information, and you happen to be that social worker for your parents. It was sort of a mixed blessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess
0: you could say sure. I knew too much. Right. And, so, and also... <laughs> My father, ordinarily the spouse would be the one that would make decisions and would, would be the one that would communicate with the doctors, but he sort of advocated that to me. He said, I trust you, and you know what to ask, so I want you to be making these decisions. I want you to be the bridge between mom and me and, and the, the hospital medical team.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I was glad I could do it, but it also was really tough for me.
1: I can imagine. And your your mom, you wrote that your mom refused home health aides when her cancer returned and your dad as well but you were really concerned about the toll of caregiving that it was taking on him i think you had the opportunity to at one point discuss this with your dad because you had such a honest relationship it sounds like for people whose relationships with their parents have been difficult what can you tell them
0: i would say the first thing is you want to if at all possible you want to be proactive and you want to have these caregiver conversations when your loved ones are healthy. So you're not coming from a place of crisis, you're right. coming from a an open, candid place. But you want to come from a position of love. You want to express yourself saying that, I really care about you, I and also from a place of collaboration so that you're all working together with the goal being your loved one's best care, understanding what their wishes are, and uh, with a goal of having as much a quality of life as possible. If those things are on the table, then you're in a a very good place to begin and have those conversations. Mm -hmm. You also need to be open to changing whatever is decided That conversation is not a one-conversation, one-time event. Uh It's a series of conversations. And so what I would say to your listeners is, if you have that initial caregiver conversation and it feels like it falls on deaf ears or falls flat, don't necessarily assume that that's the case. You've opened the door a little bit. Uh And down the line, you can reference that conversation, or maybe your loved one will be the one to bring it up. But you just need to be prepared for the idea that it's an ongoing conversation that will come up and as circumstances change, you need to be flexible in terms of the content of the conversation and the direction that it's going to go based on the needs of the loved one who needs the care and the caregiving team.
1: Yeah, it's a really good lesson for us type A's who want to fix things right away. <laughs> I count myself a mother. Yeah, them. <laughs> no.
0: It, unfortunately, in these situations, there's there's not, not very often is there a quick fix, and I think that's one of the most frustrating aspects of being a caregiver. Yeah, you, when you see someone you love changing physically and emotionally and psychologically and mentally, it's so hard to see those changes. Mm -hmm. And you're grieving the loss of the person that you know and that you loved, And at the same time, you have to be there for them. And you have to be as strong and supportive as you possibly can. And that's a really tough thing for people to do.
1: Yeah. I want to read this phrase that relates to that. I want to read this phrase from your book because it was so moving. You wrote, it's important to remind ourselves that the people we see in their old age today are an altered reflection of who they were when they were young. It can be hard to remember that when we're in the midst of all the challenges aging creates and being a caretaker presents. I found that, first of all, beautifully written, but also I love the fact that your dad started writing, you refer to it as a little autobiography. Right. And in his autobiography reminded you and the reader of who that person was when he was younger. He wrote a lot about his days as an Army sergeant during World War II, and I just love the fact that you encouraged that. What are the benefits of having an older person talk about and write down his or her history?
0: The benefits are enormous on so many levels, and I was so pleased he did that because he wasn't a writer. I think one, one thing that happens in families is There's a set of stories, and you hear those stories over and over again to the point that you don't want to hear them anymore. And so what I would encourage your listeners to do is when they hear that familiar story coming to ask a new question or listen in a different way and try to imagine what it's like for your loved one who's telling the story. It really was important for my dad because the Army stories were old memory. And for people that are older, the old memories are much more easily accessible than the newer ones. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that's their identity. And so it's super important. It's called reminiscent therapy, and it it accesses parts of the brain. Uh, It's more deeply embedded in the brain, and so the the information is more accessible. You'll hear people talk about the fact that a loved one can remember something that happened 50 years ago, but they can't remember what they had for breakfast
2: that day. Right,
0: right. And it's... totally true, and that's the reason for it. The war experience my dad had was a huge part of his identity and who he was, mm-hmm. and the memories were very vivid, and so I really wanted to share them with him because I knew that it was an important part of his identity. He was very proud of that. He was a patriot, and so it it made him feel good to talk about that, and so um, I was very eager to allow him every opportunity that he could to do that. And just showing interest and caring about that, that can create an intimacy and a bond with a loved one that may not have been there before, Mm -hmm. and that's what you want to do. Caregiving is obviously a very challenging and difficult time, but for some people it can also be, for many people I would say, it can be a time where you can grow closer to your loved one in new ways. It could create an intimacy that you never had before, Mm-hmm. You can learn things about a loved one or share things about yourself on topics that you hadn't shared before. It takes that leap of faith, and it, it it's sort of a moving slowly sort of process, but so many wonderful things can come from it for all concerned.
1: Did you learn anything new about your dad during this process where he was writing things down and sharing? And what surprised you, if anything?
0: You know, what surprised me the most was how important that experience in the war was and how positive it was for him. You, mm-hmm. you don't think about someone going off to war, particularly World War II, as something that would be good memories, but mm-hmm. what the thing that surprised me the most was he, part of the reason he went to war was to sort of escape his biological family, his parents' were verbally abusive and sometimes physically and he he volunteered to go to war to escape that and then Mm -hmm. as many you'll hear many uh, military people talk about the band brothers he Mm -hmm. had incredibly strong powerful relationships with the um the other soldiers in his in his troop and so i guess i hadn't realized how strong those bonds were and how much they meant to him till i I read what he wrote and we talked more about it
1: Mm -hmm. you think of your parents i don't know if this way for everybody, but you think of your parents when you're growing up with them as always being older. (laughs) You don't really think about their youth. My parents were married for 56 years and my father died uh, suddenly of a heart attack and my mother was 80 at the time. And she said to me at one point, very simply, we grew up together. And Mm, I hadn't really put that together in my head because you just think of your parents as parents all the time, you know, and through the time I spent living with her and caring for her, I learned so much about their marriage and their relationship that I didn't know going all the way back to their early 20s, which was amazing. I mean, of course, in an abstract way, you know, your parents were younger, but you just you don't know that much about their youth. So it was really it, cool absolutely. to
0: discover that. They, they've led many lives before we came into the That's picture. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and that was one, you know, that was one of the things I, I really loved about my job as a, as a medical social worker, because I would go in my patient's room and when I would meet the patient my my patients and I would love to talk to them about their youth and about growing up and about meaningful times in their lives because it really helped me to understand who they were you know when you go into a hospital you see a sick person lying in a bed
2: right. in a
0: hospital gown
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and those people are so much more than that yeah and it means so much to them when you Spend the time and take the time to find out who they are and who they were and what points in their life and people in their life meant a lot to them. Mm -hmm. And as a social worker, too, it helped helped me bridge and create a strong relationship with them, too, that they would trust me to be there to help them with whatever medical issues they had to cope with because most of the people that I worked with had pretty catastrophic illnesses, life-changing. And so um, it was really important that I'd be there for them and their families. As a family member, too, you you want the people taking care of your loved one to do that, I think. Yeah. I can remember very distinctly a moment when my dad uh, was in the intensive care unit when he had brain surgery, and he came out the surgery, and he was laying in the bed, and he looked so fragile and so sick. And and I immediately was thinking back to his time in World War II, and his job was very physical. He lifted 300-pound barrels of uh, scrap metal, and he right. was in incredible shape physically, and it really hit me looking at him and and seeing how he was and how he appeared to the nurses and the staff at the hospital and, and the man that I, I had known. Mm-hmm.
1: Your mom, as you referred to earlier, she passed away at 57. Um, yes. And after she died, your dad found himself, as you wrote, living alone in a five-bedroom house, and he was 68, 69 years old. Walk us through some of the adjustments he and you went through, and some of the concerns that you had with him living in that house by himself.
0: Yeah, well, he was 70 when she when she died, okay. and first of all, the, the house was very large. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if he could cook, because he, he wasn't much of a cook. I didn't know... If he could manage, you know, just normal chores and skills like doing the laundry, cleaning the house, like grocery shopping. So, initially, after my mom died, I spent a lot of time at the house teaching him about cooking. I didn't even know if he, I honestly, didn't know if he knew where the pots and pans were. Uh-huh. In the <laughs> Sounds like my so dad. We, we, we toured the kitchen, and I, to my <laughs> delight, he didn't know the, the place where the pots and pans were. But he he moved for, I have to say, to his incredible credit, he moved from being able to find the pots and pans to calling me with delight to tell me about the new
2: recipe he found. Oh, my gosh, that's dinner. incredible.
0: Yeah, and so it was just, for me, it was a question of, just making sure that he had the, the skill set just to do the things that he needed to stay safe and to take care of himself and do the laundry and all that stuff. And I have to say he surprised me in amazing ways and being able to do that for quite some time. It was a large home and as he got older, uh, there were concerns, my siblings and I had concerns about. The house and and he wasn't able to take care of it the way that he should have and uh-huh. also in his eighties he was shoveling snow and climbing up a ladder cleaning oh the gutters and things like That's that scary. that were giving us a lot of source of concern about that so uh-huh. we were worried about that sort of thing and as you mentioned I'm in Chicago we had a lot of snowy winters so yeah <laughs> that was that was a scary time
1: uh huh. Yeah, it's so interesting because my parents kind of let their house go as well as they got older. And my younger sister mentioned something to them. And my dad got really kind of upset. I kind of got angry with her. Like, oh, that's ridiculous. The house isn't messy. And, and, and you had a similar experience with your dad like that as, as he got older. I just That just resonated with me. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. And I think being on their side of the spectrum, I think he took offense. He, yeah. he thought yeah. I was criticizing him. And I suspect that was true for you too and I wasn't trying to criticize but I also was concerned about his health in terms of living in a place that was really dirty and um, I wasn't sure he was cleaning the dishes properly or the pans properly and I was concerned about him eating something and getting sick because he hadn't Done what he needed to to prepare it, but yeah, he did take offense, and and that's really tricky when you're an adult child and you're you're having these discussions with your parents or aging loved ones. Um, It's a very delicate dance.
1: Yeah, it's a delicate dance. That's a great way of putting it. So, in 2002, your dad announced that he sold the house right out of the way. Surprise! Tell us about that and what came next.
0: Yeah, I, I was on vacation and I came home and I called my dad and I said, "What's new?" And he said. I sold the house, and I was very taken aback, (laughs) although I was happy he'd done And I said, well, when do you have to be out? And he said, in three weeks. And I was shocked. And then I said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, well, I I was hoping you'd help me figure that out. Uh
2: so
0: that was a house that we'd lived in our entire life, and we had all the possessions of, five deceased relatives in the house. So I had, I had three weeks to put in the sale together and to uh, clear the house out and to find him a place to live.
1: So that was quite the challenge. And then you started visiting different um, assisted living facilities. I like the fact that throughout all of this, it was really important for you that your dad make the decisions that your dad choose. And not all daughters would do that. They would bulldoze their way in and say, this is what's going to happen. This is where you're going. Sounds like a really respectful relationship you had there. But anyway, tell us about visiting those assisted living facilities and the questions you asked.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I want to say, too, that he made the right decision. So there were some time limitations put on me, and Uh it was a crazy, hectic time. But Uh I was so grateful for him that he made that decision, which was the right one. He needed to be somewhere where there was additional support and supervision so again I came from a place of collaboration and I said to him what's the most important thing for you as we're looking for places
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and the issues that came up were he wanted to be physically not far from me he really liked to work out so he wanted a place that had a gym that he could work out food was the most important thing in his life and so we had to have a place that had good food
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and we looked at the financial piece to what he could afford and I identified three places that met his criteria, and we went to visit because food was so important to him. We arranged to eat at all the places so Uh that he could (laughs) taste the cuisine. Uh They're they're very happy to do that. It's not not tough to do that. Uh The thing that people don't realize there's a lot of competition between sure. assisted living right. programs. And so they're very amenable to doing things for you that you wouldn't imagine they would because they, of course, want people to come and live there. That's a
1: really great and point.
0: And the, the, the other reason I wanted to eat there, quite honestly, was I wanted to see the way the staff interacted with the residents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I also wanted to get a chance to meet other residents and family members, and we could do that while we were dining.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
0: I went over to people and, and talked with them. And so it was a really, I thought, a really positive experience for him and me and my mm-hmm. sister. And then I let him, from the places that I gave him, any one of the three was totally acceptable to me. I let him choose the place that was his favorite. And then we went in and we looked at apartments. And assisted living means that there's different forms of it, but you can't have your own apartment. And sometimes they have a kitchen, sometimes they don't. But right um the place that he chose had a dining room as i said he wasn't much of a cook so we found an apartment a, a floor plan that met his needs and another issue for again for your listeners when they're looking at places i would say this mobility is an issue for many people so you want to choose a apartment or place where Physically, it's not cumbersome or difficult for your loved one to go from point A to point B. Right. And also, you want to meet the staff. So I, I met the director of the place. I met the head of nursing my father's first order of business when he moved in was to make sure he met the chef and the woman that seats people in the dining uh-huh. room
2: so that he
0: could, get, he could get the best possible treatment. Boy, <laughs> he was crafty. They, they knew him. They knew he was very crafty. He was the first person at the door. He would sit with a crossword puzzle, and, and he knew the schedule, and he would wait until the place opened, and that way he got the best seat in the house. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it really is important to meet the other staff that's there, and you can ask to talk with other residents and other family members, and I would say if they say no, that's not a place you should go, because you want to find out about their experience. The other thing I did that I think really helped my father was, since the war was so important to him, when I met with the director there, I asked if there were other World War II vets there, and she said there Mm -hmm. were, Mm -hmm. so when we visited, I arranged for my dad to meet three of the residents there that were World War II vets. So he immediately had a group of guys that he felt he had something in common with, and they were great. They were very lovely with him.
2: Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. if
0: you share interests or hobbies or things that your loved one has, again, they will try to be accommodating about that. Because that transition, even if it's a place you, you think it's going to work out, there's always some anxiety about moving to a new place.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and yeah.
0: anything you can do to alleviate that anxiety, I think, really helps.
1: Mm-hmm. Was there ever any discussion about the possibility of your dad moving in with one of the kids?
0: No. There were <laughs> a, a couple of reasons. One was my place has a, a lot of stairs. And you know, also we uh, we had limited room. And secondly, he, he wanted to be independent of us. We knew that it was better for him to be living independently, and he didn't want to be a burden by living with us. Mm-hmm. So that that wasn't in the cards for us, but mm-hmm. that's certainly, you know, for a lot of people, that's a, certainly a, a great alternative, and if people are thinking about that, you want to look at the accessibility of your home. You want to oh, yeah. make sure that if there are stairs how those will be managed. You want to kind of take a look about privacy issues. You want to take a look about how that's going to impact your family, how it's going to impact your loved one. Set some ground rules about it before they move in. Mm-hmm. Have a really candid discussion about the pros and cons about it and Even after that discussion, um, I would say if someone does move in, you should have an agreement of a time frame, be it a month or whatever, that you all sit down and have a discussion about how is it going, what's working, what's not working, Mm -hmm. what's possible to change. It's really important to do
1: that. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the considerations your dad had when he moved into one of these facilities was that he had a lady friend at the time.
2: He did. Yes he did. I'd
1: love you to talk about that and his, you know, sort of reemergence into the social world.
0: Okay. About a year or two after my mom died, my father told me that he had gone out to a, a bar and he'd <laughs> walked into the bar and he picked the most beautiful woman in the bar and asked her to dance. And I was very familiar with the bar because it was a place that I had gone, and I knew there were a lot of younger people there, way younger than my dad. Uh And so I I applauded his brevity about asking the most beautiful woman in the room to dance, and I said to him, are you at a point where you'd like to start dating? And he said, yes, I am. Mm. And I said, it sounds like you're not quite sure where to go or how to meet people. And he said, that's true. And I said, well... Would it be okay if I helped you with that? And I knew of some singles programs for people closer to his age, mm-hmm. people not younger than me, <laughs> and were Jewish, and so he was interested in a Jewish group. So I set him up with that group, and he went, and not long after that he met a lady there who they ended up dating for about 28 years or so. Oh,
1: wow. <laughs> she
0: became his traveling companion, and uh-huh. uh, it was really great for both of them.
1: I love how your your dad wrote that he was a hot commodity.
0: He was he thought he was he was uh the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if he joked, he said, "I have a pulse, I'm not on any medication, <laughs> and I'm very active, <laughs> and I couldn't argue with any of that, so i <laughs> okay, then. I didn't even want to think about it, so. <laughs> but he was right, um, he had a rule um at the assisted living place where he lived, he had a best friend who was a guy, and they would sit outside the dining room waiting to get in, but they wouldn't sit together. So they would sit near each other so they could talk, uh-huh. and he said because he he might let a, a woman sit down at the table, and then we'd never be able to get rid of her, <laughs> and so... Which happened to be true, actually. One day a woman did sit down, and that was it. His friend could never get rid of her. She sat with him from then on after. My dad used that as an example of why he was right. He wanted to choose the ladies that he he spent time with, not have them choose him. (laughs) He he did not lack for confidence in
1: that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he'd been through the war. (laughs) Yeah. There's a certain level of confidence that is earned there. So later on, you made a trip to Greece, and you were gone for two weeks, and that must have been hard. My mom's 88, and if I went for an extended vacation, I would probably worry about her the whole time. So tell us about your trip to Greece and what happened.
0: Yeah, um, my sister lives here locally, too, and we're very close. She's really close with my dad, so we both were involved in taking care of him. And prior to that, one of us was always here, and it was my 60th birthday, and my dad was in good health. There was nothing going on, so we decided to celebrate my birthday and go to Greece. And, of course, while we were gone... My dad got pneumonia, and initially that wasn't a huge issue, but as often happens with elderly pr- people, his condition cascaded down, mm-hmm. and a lot of other medical issues came up. He needed a pacemaker, and then other things happened. His swallowing became an issue, so we got a call in Greece about 4 in the morning. My niece called. She's here, too, and uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: she told us my dad was sick. And so from that moment on, that was about two days before we were getting ready to leave, so we didn't sleep those two days because there was constant texting and phone calls going on. Decisions needed to be made about his pacemaker and I was I had the healthcare proxy. I was the one making medical decisions for him.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: also I, I wanted to be there to see what was really going on. My family here, uh, my husband was helping and my niece, and they were saying that my dad was totally confused and Mm. couldn't make decisions and were describing these things to me, you know, that he was seeing cows outside of the window, this is Chicago, he was in the hospital downtown Chicago, so really disturbing things, and I thought, well, he can't really make a decision, and I wanted to know his mental status before we moved forward. Mm -hmm. I didn't want him to undergo a pacemaker if he didn't want it, but I also wanted to get his opinion about it and... Medically, it was safe for him to wait a day or two. So we flew back from Greece. Uh, We got in about 11 o'clock at night, and we went directly... To the hospital and I have to say when we walked in the room my dad was totally coherent we walked in the room and he said how was your time in Greece and my sister was horribly ill she got very sick the day before we left she had a terrible accident and broke her collarbone and also had an infected tooth and she was a mess so she was with me and she walked in the room with a mask and my dad looked at her and he said he said I, I know you were on vacation but you look worse than me right now mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that told me he pretty much knew what was going on. It's pretty lucid. And so I, I asked him to explain to me what was going on medically, and he gave a perfectly lucid explanation about the pacemaker, why he needed it, and what the doctors had told him about his pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, what do you want to do? And as he did with other decisions, he said, you know, that bullet missed me in World War II and everything's been gravy, let's go for the pacemaker. (laughs) And so I contacted the doctor, and the next day he had the pacemaker. But as you said, it's so hard when you're not local, when you're far away and something's going on and you don't really know. And even the confusion that my family said that they saw uh, my brother flew in temporarily while we were gone for the few days to help with my dad and when i got home and i and i was at the hospital with my dad and i started talking with him because people should know and this is important for your listeners to know when people seem confused or there may be some dementia or memory issues sometimes there's a kernel of reality there and you have to explore where it's coming from mm-hmm. in my dad's case there was a crane outside of his window And the logo on the crane was like a bull with horns. And he was looking at that crane, and he was looking at the bull, and it looked like a cow. So he wasn't, initially it sounded like he was really confused. In reality, when when I explored it with him, it made sense what he was talking about. He was talking about the cow on the crane. And so it's really important to just kind of, Consider that and talk with the doctors about it. People often have episodes where in the hospital, it's a new place, it's a foreign place, sure, the sure. hours are different, yeah. so it's so common for people to get confused when they're there. You don't know when it's day or night in the hospital, oh, so true. Um, and also you're on medication sometimes that you're not normally on, and that can cause confusion. So you want to make sure you have a conversation with the doctors about what's going on, why they think it's going on, and what's the best action, you know, in terms of reacting to it and treating it.
1: Mm-hmm. There's one thing that I talked about with someone else I interviewed, a former governor of Wisconsin, Mar- Marty Schreiber. and Oh, really? Yeah, he had this great phrase called therapeutic fibbing. And (laughs) yes, yeah, yeah, I get that. (laughs) So I wondered if you would talk about that in the context of your dad, because there was a point where your dad, I think a, a few years after his brain surgery, you said he functioned pretty well, and he remained fairly independent, but you began to notice issues with his hygiene and his balance again and so you had renewed concerns about his safety. Your siblings and you were clear that you wanted to have the comfort of knowing your dad was safe and clean, so you met with the head nurse and devised a plan for an aide to check in on your dad. What did you tell him?
0: Yeah, well, we knew that he wouldn't be on board if we had the aides and the staff there coming in to offer him help because of the reasons you described, to help him take a bath or to help him wash his clothes or whatever. So what we told him was that he was so popular where he lived, and the staff liked him so much, they wanted to visit, and would that be okay with him? And of course... He thought that was lovely, that the people thought he was so nice they wanted to stop by. And, of course, while the aide stopped by, my dad would take a shower, and then she'd be there to make sure he didn't fall. Or mm-hmm. while the aide was there, she'd say, Well, you know, I'm going down to do some laundry. Would it be okay if I do your laundry? And he mm-hmm. thought that was great. Uh-huh. And we were secretly paying, paying them um, because that was an extra service. And we knew, too, that he wouldn't want to do it if it cost money. So, so um <laughs> Mm -hmm. So we took care of that. And so it it worked out very well. And again, I think that's another thing for your listeners to know, you know, sometimes one of the things that happens when you're a caregiver, your loved one might say it's Thursday and you know it's Friday or something like that. And people oftentimes get entrenched in this, no, it's Friday and and it becomes a battle and frustration levels rise and it becomes can become an angry or combative kind of situation. And I would say as a a caregiver for a loved one, you want to pick and choose those kinds of things. It didn't really matter to me if it's Thursday or Friday. You just want to... um, let some things go. And that, um, that beautiful phrase that you mentioned about the creative fibbing, mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can serve everybody well. It's okay if everything isn't exactly as it should be in that sense and everyone doesn't have to be right all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. It sounds like your siblings and you had a fairly healthy relationship. Uh, I'm sure you had your differences, but it's nice that you all agreed to share the cost of those extra aids. I don't think all siblings would do that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm really lucky. I, I have uh, an older brother and sister and a younger sister and and we get along great. And so that part was, I was incredibly lucky. And as you said, that doesn't always happen. Uh, my older sister lived in London, so she was far away. She did come in and help take care of my dad and give us some respite, but she also, she has a lot of financial resources. And mm-hmm. so she said, let me help financially. So she pitched in in that way um, in addition to coming in. And what I would say for families, again, for your listeners, again, another thing associated with caregiving is especially when you, when you talk with family members and you're building a, a family support network, sometimes people say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then when you actually start the process, people don't do what they say they're going to do or uh-huh. uh, people just don't want to get involved. And so a couple of tips that I would give about building a support network. One is I would identify what skill set each person has. Someone might be really good, for example, at the finances. And God knows when someone gets sick, there's a lot of bills, there's a lot of insurance questions. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a person that doesn't live locally, but maybe that's what they could do. Maybe someone who lives locally could agree to stop in and see mom and dad You know once a week or whatever so figuring out what needs to be done figuring out who has the skill set to help with that and resources and then setting up some kind of a caregiving plan that way and i would also say sometimes you need to go beyond the immediate family we were lucky that my immediate family could do the job but there may be friends there may be other family members there may be neighbors there may be people in your church that are considered like family Sometimes when you think about it, there's a broader range of potential help available than you realize. Mm -hmm. And so as a caregiver, it's really important to sort of identify the people that might be part of that caregiving team and see who can do what. And again, in those situations, when you set up a plan, I always recommend to people reassess. So in a month, sit down, have everyone who's involved in the caregiving talk about their experience, what worked, what didn't work, and make whatever necessary adjustments you need to make.
1: Mm -hmm. You were extremely devoted, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way at all, or idealizing way. What sort of complications did this bring for you in terms of your work? All this time, you're so invested, and rightfully so, in your your mom's health, and in particular your dad's health. How hard was it for you to manage your own life around all that?
0: I'm extremely lucky in that um, my husband was very understanding and supportive. My sister was here, and uh, my niece is here, and also I don't have a 40-hour-a-week kind of job. Um, I have the ability to alter my schedule. When my dad got really sick for those last few months, I was pretty consumed by it. And I had to be there a lot. And so that was a time when my husband picked up the things that I I did. And Mm -hmm. it was tough in the sense that I didn't sleep much because I was always waiting for that crisis call. We had a lot Mm -hmm. of crisis calls in the middle of the night. It reminded me of when I was on call as a hospital social worker. Uh I had a pager, and so I just sort of waited for the phone to ring, and so I didn't sleep much. So we had good support. But what I would say, again, to a listener who doesn't have that kind of a situation, relying on other people is really important, and sometimes uh, you might need to hire someone or Another wonderful resource that people don't know a lot about. I just wrote an article about this. It's the importance of the called geriatric care managers
2: mm-hmm. and
0: there are people around the country that are specially trained to come in and assess the situation, see what kind of help is needed who's available, and they also locally know the resources that are available, so they can come in and say, this is what I see, this is what I think you need, and this is where we can go to get it. Mm -hmm. And they can come in and hook you up with some of that respite care, which is just a chance for you as a caregiver to recharge. Mm -hmm. It might mean bringing someone in the home. It might be finding a place temporarily for a loved one to go there's lots of different scenarios depending on what the needs of the of the caretaker and the and the person needing the care are
2: mm-hmm.
0: but that's a really important place to go and in my book I mentioned uh, there's a website you can go to where wherever you live in the country you put in a zip code and they'll tell you people locally that can come in and help with
1: that Mm -hmm. we'll make sure to link to all that in the show notes iris your dad was in a nursing home when he died and it you wrote no moss were ready to let you go in peace your dad really was ready to go at a certain point and it wasn't it was a peaceful death from what i read which it was such a blessing i wonder if you could talk a little bit about his last days and the conversations that you had right before he died
0: yeah sure I was really lucky that my dad and I had had those conversations about what he thought about death and what he thought happened, mm-hmm. and when when he was ready to go, and he he made it very clear he wasn't afraid of dying. That when it came and when it happened, it happened. Um, he became very very weak, increasingly weak, and I describe in the book how I I sort of helped him die with dignity, mm-hmm. but there came a point where it was clear that he couldn't sustain himself. He wasn't eating. Uh, he was incredibly weak, and really, it was really, really painful to to see him that, that way. Um, the day before he died, I was visiting him, and he described a dream he had about my brother and sister and taking care of them. Mm. Um, and he said, I, I, I need to go to work, and I said, why do you need to work? And he said, I need to earn money so I can keep taking care of of my family, Mm. and I looked at him and I said to him, you know what, you've you've had a long hard life, you've worked a long time, it's okay for you to take a rest now, Mm. and it was very poignant for me, and to me it said that he was ready to let go, so I made sure that we got him back in bed safely, and the last thing I said to him when he was in bed was, we're ready to let you go if you're ready, Um, and I told him I loved him. I went home, and about three hours later, the nurse called me to say, "Get over here quick, because he's gonna—he's gonna die shortly." And in the ten minutes it took me to get from my apartment to where he was, he had died.
2: Mm.
0: And I, I have to say, I'm a, having worked in hospitals for so long, and and helped my mom and friends of mine die. I really feel there's a sense sometimes that people are able to let go when they're ready to let go. Mm
2: -hmm. I
0: had patients who had said to me, I just don't want to die when when this relative is in the room and that person would go out for a cup of coffee and that's when the person would die. Wow. And so it was the same thing with my mother. The doctors told me my mother, it was early in the morning, it was like 7 in the morning, they said she's not going to live more than a couple hours. And I got on the phone my sister was in California, I mean, my sister was in New York and my brother was in California and I called them, I said, get on a plane now, I told them what was happening. I went in the room and I said to my mom, they're on their way. She lived, because they, they didn't get here till you know, later that night. Mm-hmm. And She not only lived till when they got there, she was cogent. She had a conversation with them. They said goodbye and then when we hmm. were all in the room and they, we'd finished those conversations, she died a few minutes later. Wow. Yeah, so I, I think I really believe in that piece of it. There is something that I can't describe or I can't explain, but I really feel it exists.
1: Uh huh. And yet you wrote, despite all of your preparations, none of this seemed real to me.
0: That's right. I don't think you can prepare yourself for the loss of someone you love. As much as you're ready for it, as much as you expect it, when it happens, it's just overwhelming, it feels surreal, and it, it takes quite a while bef- before it sets in and you realize what's happened. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, you're, you're, you're a caregiver, too, Jana, but I think when you're a caregiver, um, it's sort of like you, you just keep going. You're like the little engine that could. You know you have to do things, yeah. and so you right. keep doing it in them, and you keep doing it in them, and it becomes a huge part of your life. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so you, you don't even think about the alternative of losing them till they're gone because you, you have to be there for them. You have to keep doing it that's right. what you need to do.
1: Right. Um, and
0: so I think it, you don't allow those things to settle in till till the person's gone.
1: Mm. And what year did he die? Uh, he died in 2014. 14, not that long so ago. About three years. Yeah. yeah, not that long at all. And age 97?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah oh. we were thinking he'd live to be 100, so he surprised us.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Well, 97 is a good ripe age. I'll take that. He had a a
0: good long run. Yeah, there's no question about it. And and the vast, vast majority of that, he did the things he wanted to do the way he wanted to do them. So we Mm -hmm. we feel really grateful for that. Mm
1: -hmm. You wrote that the writing of this book took you in directions I would not have imagined when I began it. We touched on what surprised you before, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what surprised you in the writing of this book. And did you discover anything about yourself?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, one of the things that happened, when I originally wrote this book, it was just going to be a memoir about my dad, a tribute to him. It wasn't going to turn out the way that it, it did. And then in the midst of all of it, he got sick, and then he died. And so the thing that surprised me the most was, number one, that he died. But secondly, I couldn't write. The grief was too great for me. It was too painful. So it took me a good three or four months before I could go back to the book and actually start writing and thinking about it and continue to where, where I left off. I, it was much more painful and more difficult than I thought it would be. It's sort of like what we were just talking about. You don't expect the reactions that you that mm-hmm. you get, and mm-hmm. that really surprised me, just just how, how painful it was, even though it was something that I knew was coming, and I just needed to give myself the time that I did, and I, I wasn't going to rush it. I was going to wait until I could sit down, and then one day I opened up my computer and I went to my manuscript and I found that I could write again.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Did it change the structure of the book considerably? Because it reads like a memoir in the first half, actually three quarters of it.
0: You know, it really did. Um, Well, what happened was when I I started talking to people, you know, they'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, you know, I'm writing a memoir about my dad. And then inevitably I'd hear caregiving stories, and then people would say, oh, I'm taking care of my mom or my dad, and it didn't take me long to realize just how many people out there are in the same position that I was. There's 43 million right now. Mm -hmm. So I thought, in addition to telling my dad's story, I wanted to give people the resources and tools and information they needed so they, they would feel less alone, and it would help them with the caregiving challenges that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for me the other thing that happened when i realized i had my dad's autobiography originally i wasn't going to include that and then i thought wow why not have his voice in addition to mine so that that was a way to keep him alive mm-hmm. and that was a way for people mm-hmm. to get to know him mm-hmm. and before i write a book i always do a lot of research because i don't want to write a book that's already been written and what mm-hmm. i found was that there really weren't caregiving books that had both voices like that Mm -hmm. and so Mm
1: -hmm. i thought that would
0: that would make my book a little unique
1: well it was very effective i liked it a lot because it definitely gave me a window onto your dad's personality Um, yeah that's great that makes me feel good because that's what What I was hoping. We've been speaking with author and licensed clinical social worker Iris Wakeler about her new book, Role Reversal How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. A Best Books Award finalist, a reader's favorite book award winner, and a Giving Now book award winner. It's not only chock full of useful information. It's also really well written and a very moving story of her family's journey with her aging parents. We'll have all kinds of links on the AgeWise website to Iris's work, but if you want to jump in right now, go to irisweichler.com, that's iris, W-A-I-C-H-L-E-R.com, and dive on in. Iris, thanks so much for being on the show and for writing this really beautiful, lovely, and useful book. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, Janet. It's really been a pleasure talking with you.
1: That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, rate us, and don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A G E W Y Z. Dot com and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you you'll get tips find links to useful information laugh cry and best of all know you're not alone the age wise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated speak up talk radio network i'm Jana panaritas see you next time and remember every caregiver has a story i want to hear yours